I've always been a bit of an adventure junkie. Whether it's jumping from a plane at 16,000 feet, or a simple hike with a dear friend. I cherish it all for the thrill it provides, and the memories it forms. So, when Martin, an old friend of mine, came to me with a unique proposal, I made sure to listen. Martin is an anthropologist. For the better part of the last 25 years, his explorations have focused primarily on blue holes, deep flooded networks of underground passages in some of the most remote places on Earth. He asked me if I would join him on his next venture, in place of his assistant, who wouldn't be able to make the trip. I was skeptical, as I had little experience with scuba and zero in a cave environment. I was up for the challenge, but also a bit nervous about being dozens of meters underwater in tunnels about the size of sewer pipes. I was assured by Martin that it would not be that way, however. He said the dive was an open cavern, and there were no plans to do anything too crazy. I accepted after a bit of deliberation and completed the six-month course geared towards cave diving safety. Soon after, I found myself on a plane bound for the Bahamas. I met the team on the island of Andros, and we headed out together. We arrived at the nearest parking lot and unloaded the equipment. After lugging some 30 kilograms of equipment an hour through the muggy trails, we finally arrived at our oasis. At first glance, it was just a hole in the ground filled with water. I would have never guessed that the little pond plunged to over 60 meters down. The water level was about 5 meters below the lip of the cave, and was orchestrated in a manner reminiscent of a toilet bowl. An oblong circular ledge made of limestone leading to a 5 meter drop into the water below. The only way in was to jump. We geared up, had a last minute powwow, and then took the plunge. There were six of us that entered the pool. In addition to Martin and myself was Javier, his right-hand man and close friend, Tank, a local guy who was an expert in the area, and the camera crew consisting of Rory and his wife Dawn. The alpha pool where we entered is over 60 meters deep, but from the surface it might as well be endless. Our primary headlamps illuminated only patches of the abyss. Crystallized stalagmites jutted from the walls and ceiling like spikes in an Iron Maiden. The sides of the cave were dotted with narrow corridors and slim cracks in the wall. Some plant and algae specimens existed, but not many. We took our time on the way down, pausing and glancing around the area. Rory and Dawn filmed over the rock wall slowly, taking long wide passes to capture each nook and cranny. Javier laid the guideline, a coil of reinforced twine designed to mark our path. Some five meters below us, a dense canopy of orange haze came into view. The coloration was due to the presence of hydrogen sulfide. Bacteria feeds on animals that fall in and drown and excrete the foul substance. It is a poisonous substance that smells like rotten eggs, makes your lips tingle, and prolonged exposure can cause brain damage. On the other side of the hydrogen sulfide cloud was the oxygen-free zone. This is one of the main draws for the anthropologists like Martin. The water at the bottom, most regions are completely devoid of oxygen. This means that natural decomposition does not occur because bacteria and other microbes can't survive. Biologic material can be preserved for much longer than it would be at the surface. The caverns serve as a sort of time capsule and an anthropologist's goldmine. Martin touched down and began stewing around in the muck on the cavern floor some 30 meters down. Around him, clumps of silt and biologic compost stirred into an underwater torrent that soon clouded the area. His assistants joined him soon after and began their soiree into the silt pile. 
The team ended up finding several well-preserved specimens, including the skulls and various remains of a rock iguana, a leatherback turtle, a wild hog, several types of small birds and fish, an albatross, and a Bukhara deer. The discovery of fish remains meant that at some point, the cave was connected to another waterway. Perhaps it still was. By far the most interesting discovery, however, was one that was not immediately recognized. A large, almost basket-like bony plate with bumpy ridges along the outer shell. It was thought to be a large turtle shell, but the curvature of its shape made that unlikely. Unfortunately, it was entirely too large to haul back to the surface. Martin theorized that the shell belonged to an extinct mammalian creature known as the Glyptodon. Think giant Ice Age armadillo with the head of a wombat. If Martin's suspicion was correct, it would be the first remnant of a Glyptodon to ever be discovered in the Caribbean. The beast went extinct some 10,000 years ago, but the findings seemed to bring that analysis back into question. Maybe Glyptodon stayed around a little longer than previously believed. We performed another several dives over the next few days, going deeper and deeper each time. We explored several side passages as well that branched away from the Alpha Pool. At one point, we were traveling down a tunnel when we came to an extremely narrow fork in the road. The path to the left appeared to widen and branch out, while the one to the right appeared to narrow even further and continued downward. Much to my chagrin, Martin chose the right-hand path. The opening could not have been more than a half meter in diameter. Martin went through, followed by three others, and then it was my turn. I chickened out. Tank swam up to me, and I just shook my head, gesturing for him to proceed. He made the okay signal, and ventured on through while I stayed behind. I meandered about in that area, twiddling my thumbs as I waited for the group to return. At one point, my headlamp caught something that sparkled on the cave wall. I moved toward it for a better look. I soon discovered it to be a small, rusted chain necklace with an intricate pendant attached. I took it and admired it in my hand, thinking maybe another member of the crew had lost it. It had no visible markings and the style was one I was not familiar with. While I stared, enamored with my discovery, something shifted from the corner of my eye. I turned to see an indistinct shadow slither out of sight, like a snake made from obsidian. It was impossible though. We were below the oxygen threshold. No creature could survive down there, at least not one that required oxygen. It must have just stemmed from my overactive imagination, left alone in the dark. That's what I chose to believe anyway. The team returned several minutes later and we ascended back to the brim of the Alpha Pool. Something was different though. The other members of the dive team had grown unusually quiet, especially after a successful dive. Even Javier, the most vocal of the team, was now stoic. Martin pulled me aside soon after, and I was informed why. We found something. He spoke the words without an ounce of his usual enthusiasm. Martin swallowed hard and glanced back to the rest of the crew. He went on to tell me how he had continued on in that narrow corridor, and after several minutes, came to a dead end. It was there he found it, in a pile of silt and muck. A vibrant strand of yellow polyester stood out. A pile of bones, wrapped with a black and yellow tattered garment, lay discombobulated on the chamber floor. These bones were different, though. One look at the skull and equipment and he knew. They were human. Martin discovered soon after that it was a fellow diver. Accidents like that are a grim reality of the profession. 
A lot of good lives, people have been lost to the depths of blue holes. It seems that this man, whoever he was, suffered the same fate. His equipment was shredded almost beyond recognition, but fragments of his dive suit and mask remained. He must have been down there for quite a long time. We talked over the discovery of the lost diver and took a moment to pay our silent respects. I told them about the necklace and displayed it around as well. Martin remained silent, not eating his dinner and remaining distant from the group. After a few minutes, I decided to check on him. No one's ever been down that far before. He looked me dead in the eye when he said it, a worried grimace on his grizzled cheeks, at least not that we know of. He clarified, here I had been under the impression that the entire system had already been thoroughly explored and mapped out, but obviously that wasn't the case. I had no intention of returning into that godforsaken hole after the discovery of the deceased diver. Martin understood, but wasn't ready to call it quits. After all, there was one more passage that needed investigation. Martin theorized it to be the most grandiose of them all. A realm of submerged majesty, unscathed by human hands. One which, upon our return, would be named for us. I don't know how or why his words managed to convince me, but I soon found myself suited up once again, floating at the surface of the Alpha Pool. We performed the usual routine and one by one, my colleagues sank below for one more dive. We made our way back to the same tunnel as the previous escapade, this time at the fork. We took the left-hand path. Martin took the lead and stepped into the corridor. Each methodical kick he took stirred a flurry of silt into the water. In no time, visibility in the tunnel became nil as our group stumbled blindly onward. Crumbling debris rained down from the roof as we pressed on, and I lost all sight of the rest of our crew. My heart rate began to climb yet again as the dense cloud spiraled around me. I clutched the guideline for dear life with my left hand while my right moved along the tunnel wall. For several minutes, I stumbled along blind in the fog with only my sense of touch guiding the way. The porous rock that suddenly turned into a smooth, almost squishy sensation. I retracted my hand out of instinct, but curiosity drove me back. I felt along the wall until the squishy sensation returned. My hand began to clench when suddenly the thing jerked. I felt it wiggle away, and my heart sunk like an anchor. I hustled forward now with a new sense of urgency. I bumped my head several times as I moved, but finally, the dense fog dispersed, and I emerged from the fog, only to be met with an empty chasm of endless black that stretched beyond sight in every direction. I looked back to see the murky tunnel from which I had come, and the stone wall which dove dozens of meters down. Martin, Javier, Rory, and Dawn were all drifting a couple meters out, surrounded by nothing but the void. We regrouped and Martin removed a glow stick from his pack. He cracked it and stared for a moment before releasing his grip. The neon green candle drifted downward further and further. We must have watched it sink for at least half a minute before it finally appeared to come to a rest at the bottom. But at that point, it was only a single green pixel on a 4K display. It must have been hundreds of meters deep. The light then vanished entirely, likely snuffed out from the immense pressure below. We lingered for a moment, waiting for Martin to decide on a plan. A muffled squeal then escaped Dawn's lips with a flurry of bubbles. We turned to Dawn to see her frantically tapping Rory and pointing downward. We looked down, 
and stared in disbelief as the glow stick appeared to begin to rise upward from the bottom. I began to back away towards the tunnel, now with my heart clamoring and mind screaming for me to get the hell out. The light continued to ascend, seeming to pick up speed as it went. It also looked as though it had changed color from neon green to more of a blue tint. The light also seemed to be changing shape rapidly, as if bending from side to side. Dawn began to move towards me, but the rest of the team stared down, transfixed by the glowing spectacle. Others began to back away one by one as the light drew nearer. Eventually, Martin was the only one who remained. The light then reached him, and our headlamps revealed it for what it was. An eel or lamprey of some sort, maybe two feet in length and solid black. The blue light we had seen was imprinted along its belly as some kind of bioluminescent display. The creature began to circle Martin slowly, as if curious. Martin appeared almost enthralled by the thing. It was without a doubt nothing like any creature I had ever seen, probably one which would be entirely new to science. The creature then drifted a few feet away from Martin and began moving in a strange motion. The best word I can use to describe it would be a sort of dance. It would pause briefly and then wiggle quickly before pausing again. It repeated the motion over and over, staying true to its pattern. It was almost hypnotizing to behold. Despite the interesting find, I felt a dread begin to mount to my stomach. A minuscule flash then caught my eye from below. There was another one, and it too was rising towards us. Another flashed to life a second later, followed quickly by another. Soon dozens of them began to emerge and follow suit with the others. The second soon joined the first beside Martin, and straight away began the same peculiar display in perfect synchronization with the first. A third joined in, and then a fourth. I looked down again, and my heart lurched into my throat. The entire area below us had begun to glow as hundreds of the things became illuminated and rose like a flock of dazzling blue embers. In the middle of them, though, a much larger light took form. It began to rise, sparkles of blue flashing upon it in a dazzling performance. Martin had finally seen enough. He turned to join us, but it was too late. As soon as he moved, one of the eels lunged for him, coiling itself around his arm and digging into his flesh. Dozens joined the attack within seconds as it turned into an all-out feeding frenzy. I heard Martin scream, but there was never any hope of saving him. The rest of us fled immediately back into the dingy slit-laden passage that led us in. Dawn went first, followed quickly by Javier, and then me. I moved as quickly as I could through the passage, blinded by the slurry but caring only about escape at all cost. Behind me I heard a torrential commotion as the voracious creatures pursued us. There was a sudden burst of energy from behind. It was like an underwater sonic boom followed quickly by the clanging of metal meeting rock repeatedly. The tunnel itself seemed to groan in protest as what I can only assume was a burst air tank began to clang around wildly. I finally burst from the tunnel and re-entered the bottom of the alpha pool. I clawed my way frantically through the depths in a desperate bid to reach the surface, and for a split second, I peered back over my shoulder as a muffled scream gurgled through the cave. I saw a tank there, frantic as a mass of slippery black serpents began to tear into him. Parts of his face and body were stripped of flesh in seconds, leaving only skeletal remains in their wake. He ceased his struggle, and the mob enveloped him. I'm so sorry, Tank. 
The words echoed in my mind as I turned and made a mad dash upwards. I felt them closing in behind me as the smell of rotten eggs filled my nostrils. Several razor mounds gripped onto my leg as I swam, breaking into the red mist of the hydrogen sulfide. I thought I was done for, when the mounds released their grips. I turned as I cleared the putrid lair and saw hundreds of the vile glowing things staring back up at me. They continued their same dancing motion, hundreds of them in perfect unison. A much larger shadow bulged from the cluster. This one was massive, at least ten times the size of its kin. It did not wiggle like the others. It drifted silently, bearing a mouth of hundreds of razor teeth and ornate, almost rune-like splotches of neon blue on its skin. Its mouth jutted from its head, as what can only be described as an umbrella of hooked teeth gleamed in the sparse cavern light. I could sense its hunger, but also something else. The way it drifted was methodical, and the little ones cleared a path as it came through. It was almost like they were communicating. My saving grace was that it and its minions refused to cross the red barrier of the hydrogen sulfide. I kept an eye on her, the large one, the brood mother. I rose to the surface and burst from the underworld and back into mine. Don, Javier, and myself were the only ones to return from that dreadful place. The pain eats at me daily for those we lost, and I wish we had never entered that godforsaken place. It's not safe. The cave itself has since been sealed off, with no one allowed to re-enter it. The members we lost are still down there, forever entombed in the murky depths. I still don't know how those things were able to survive down there. The only explanation I can think of is undoubtedly the most troubling. The cave connects to another source of water. I've told this story to several sources, but none of them ever take me seriously. I'm done worrying whether people will still believe me. Some days I don't even believe me. I just hope for all our sake that the cave is not, in fact, connected to any other waterway like I believe it is. I can't imagine what would happen if those things ever got out. Needless to say, though, I don't think I'll be planning another cave diving trip anytime soon.